Hi, this is Sandy Shore from SmoothJazz.com Global, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with your host, Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. My name is Robert Miller, and I am the host of this podcast. You know, there are rock stars and there are rock stars in this world. My guest today is a true rock star. His name is Anton Fig, and I'm going to tell you all about him if you don't know in just a moment. But, you know, underneath this introduction, the song that I'm featuring in this episode is a song called Cakewalk for Deborah, which is the first song that I ever wrote. And I wrote it a long, long time ago. And when I recorded it in the early 90s, guess what? I asked Anton if he would play on the track, and he was kind enough to do so. So you're hearing Anton Fig on the drums in this track as well. And you're going to hear the whole track again at the end of this episode. You can get a free download of Cakewalk for Deborah just by going to followyourdreampodcast.com slash roadmap hyphen song. And I've got a special offer for all my podcast listeners. Just go to the pgsstore.com, buy any of our digital albums, and you'll get a second album for free. Just enter the code podcast when you check out. So again, my guest today is Anton Fig. Anton, if you don't know his name, you know him by sight because he was on the Letterman Show, the David Letterman Show, for I think 29 years. He'll tell us exactly. And he was on so many other events besides that, so many tours. He's played with everybody in the world that you can imagine in music. And I'm so thrilled to have him on the show. He's most recently been associated with Joe Bonamassa, We'll talk about that as well. So, Anton Fig, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hey, Bob. Good to be here. I mean, it's been so long ago that we saw one another. Right. We actually met when we were both in Boston in the early 1970s. Now, you had just come over, if I remember, from South Africa. Am I right? Correct. So, tell us a little bit about South Africa and starting out on the drums there, and then how you got to the United States. You know, as a little baby, just about, I was always fascinated by the sound of the drums. And so I would hit on pots and pans, and eventually that evolved into the drum kit. And I played in rock bands in, in Cape Town. And eventually I told my folks that I wanted to go overseas because that's where I thought all the great musicians were, because Cape Town... Cape Town, South Africa, I mean, it was very isolated in those days. There was no cell phones. There was actually no television. There were no VHSs even. No they television. Were, no television. I didn't wow. grow up. They got TV about a year after I left. <laughs> and it was isolated. It was politically a weird place. And um, they, the government kind of kept us isolated. 
But, you know, when I was there, I got to hear, like, obviously, and play with a lot of, uh, you know, the Indian, black music that was happening in South Africa, very similar to what you heard on the Graceland album by Paul Simon, that kind of, those backing tracks, that kind of music. Right. And then the English Invasion stuff came over to Cape Town, uh, to South Africa, and that was like the Beatles, Stones, Hendrix, you know, the Who, all those kinds of bands. We never got to see them because we didn't have TV and no one really toured down there. So I had a real desire to kind of come over to America and be able to hear these bands and see them and also try and play in America. So my folks eventually said, okay, well, if you're going to go over, you have to go to college. And so I applied to the New England Conservatory and I got in in Boston and I got in and, and a, a mutual friend of ours, Stanley Sagov, was the, uh, he was a doctor and but he was also studying music and he still to this day still does both. And so he invited me around to come and play at his place one Saturday afternoon. And I was, and he played me some tapes and I was really interested to play with you because at those in those days, you sounded a lot like Jack Bruce to me, <laughs> and like a really like aggressive kind of bass playing, and uh, you know, kind of like almost like lead bass playing. And um, I still got that style. Okay, oh good, good. <laughs> great. So we started to play with Stanley at his house on uh, Beacon Hill, and that's where we met, and that's where we played, and you know, and I did. I, I after. Getting my degree in Boston, I eventually moved down to New York City. Before we go there, yeah. you chose New England Conservatory. Was that because of Stanley? Or, I mean, you had Berkeley as the alternative that you could have right. gone to. Why did you choose New England? Well, I, I believe at that time it was a better school. And, you know, it was kind of prestigious to get in. The funny thing was that I, I applied for the jazz department and got accepted. And this could never happen today. I got accepted into the classical department. I don't know why or how. I didn't have any, you know, credentials. And I'd sent in a jazz kind of tape. Anyway, they accepted me into the classical department, and then I did both degrees at the same time. So I studied classical orchestra and all that stuff, plus I played in all the jazz bands. Now, what I remember back then is you were basically a rock and roll drummer. That's how you had grown up in South Africa. Right. You really wanted to play jazz. Am I right? Right. Well, I, I was a rock drummer, and that's what I still that's what I am to my core. But I got interested in jazz, and I, but because I thought it would make me a better rock drummer in a weird way. I just you know heard a whole different language that the jazz drummers were doing, and I thought that that would kind of enhance my playing, and then I would become a better rock drummer but I got very heavily into jazz while I was and, and I stopped listening to rock and all I pursued was jazz the whole you know for the five years I was in Boston I seem to remember that we also you and I played in this band Segov that was named after our resident keyboard player as you mentioned and my first big concert maybe I don't know if it was yours as well we opened for Gary Burton at I think it was the Beacon Theater in Boston. This was again in the early 1970s. Do you happen to remember that? I don't actually. And then I we played remember, a well, the, the Beacon. I, I no, I don't. I don't. But you know, I I'm not. I don't seem to remember a lot of the facts. 
that that's what happens when you play rock and roll you forget yeah, right. all stuff. <laughs> right. and i know we also played at the hat shell on the uh, yeah. esplanade yeah because yeah. i have pictures of that stanley oh, sent okay. me photos okay yeah no, i do remember playing there but I, yeah and I got to send you some of the photos because, you know, your hair was down to your shoulders. Yeah. You had a big beard, a little bit different look than you have today. I still have hair down to my shoulders, but it's coming from my back, not my scalp. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you had the Boston years, and then you went on to New York. And my recollection, you tell me if I'm wrong, is that you started playing with Kiss. Am I right? I didn't start playing with Kiss. I mean, I, I, that was an early thing. I went down there and, you know, all these guys were saying, you got to get back to your roots. You know, they were talking about getting back to your roots and they were really talking about a jazz thing about, you know, music coming from Africa. But and then I went, wait a second, my roots are in rock and roll. That's how I grew up. And that's, I listened to a lot of that kind of stuff. I listened to all kinds of music, but that's, I was primarily a rock drummer. So I started to play rock. And I immediately started to work in New York as a rock drummer. And I formed a band with some other South Africans in New York. And we auditioned this bass player who didn't end up working with us. But he said to me after, the, after we played, hey, I got this friend Ace in Kiss and he's doing a solo record and he's looking for a drummer. And uh, I'll get you an audition. And I went up and played with him and ended up doing his record, the Ace Fraley record, uh, which was a really big selling record. It did very, very well. Did the best out of the all, all four KISS members did solo records. And his one ended up doing going platinum and doing really well. But I didn't know much about KISS because I'd been so into jazz all the time. that To me, KISS was just like a band on the side of a bus, you know, I would see <laughs> the poster on the side of a bus. I didn't know anything about it. I mean, I went and played with him. I asked him if he was the rhythm guitarist or the lead guitarist. And so he didn't talk to me for the rest of the session, <laughs> but he hired me <laughs> to play on his record. And, you know, after I played on his record, Kiss was about to go in the studio and their drummer had broken his arm or something and, and they were on a schedule. And so on the basis of his rec Ace's record doing so well, they called me up uh, to play with them in the studio, which I did, and which I wasn't allowed to say anything about for many years, and I didn't. I didn't say anything like, you know, it's funny because in these days, you can't keep a secret, you know? It's like, right. you know, the, no one, everything's leaking. Everybody knows everything. They're like this, I... We, I, no one knew about it for 20 years. So you were uncredited as the drummer on that record, is what you're saying? Correct, yeah. Interesting. And I did a, I did a couple of records with them, and I, I was see. uncredited on both. Okay, so, and you, you started doing some other session work and stuff in New York City, is that right? Yeah, and the way that works is, you know, I, I auditioned for a band because their musicians were going off to play with Bob Dylan, and the producer, somehow I got to the, the the producer of the record and he ended up producing Jonah Armour Trading. And so he called me to play on that record. And, uh, you know, uh, Will Lee was playing on the record and Hiram Bullock and Marcus Miller and all these people. And so I kind of played with them 
And then that led to something else that led to playing with Robert Gordon and Link Ray. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And I just started to do a lot of different sessions in New York. But I was sort of, I wasn't a session musician. I was a rock guy that did a lot of sessions. But because I've listened to all different kinds of music, I was able to play in a lot of different situations pretty convincingly. And so I was in a lot of different circles because I, I didn't confine, I wasn't just like rock. I, I did some jazz gigs, you know, I could play, you know, country stuff, a little bit of funk, you know, I could play a lot of different kinds of music. And then plus, I think I had like the blend of having a bit of the jazz influence with the rock stuff that was sort of like a little bit out on the edge, you know, forward edge of, of, you know, what I had to do then. I mean, nowadays, you know, what people are doing nowadays, it's a whole different world. But are we talking about at that time? Okay. So you're playing in New York City. Tell us how you led to the Letterman gig. Because that, that was the defining gig for you, I think. Right. So I did a lot of sessions and I played with, uh, I ended up playing with Paul on with, with, with Paul Butterfield on his record. And I would ask him, let me sub on the Letterman show when, when the drummers, the regular drummer's not available. It was Steve Jordan for the drummers who are listening. And he was a fantastic drummer. Anyway, eventually he called me and asked me to sub on the show. And I came down and ended up subbing for two weeks. And then Steve came back. And then a few weeks later, Paul called me up and said, it looks like Steve is leaving the show. We really like the way you substituted and the job's yours if you want it. And so I gladly took the job and uh, it was a life changer. And I did end up doing 29 years on the show. But the show was perfect for me because you had to be able to play all different kinds of music. You know, you'd play with Tony Bennett one night and then you'd be with like, you know, uh, Stevie Winwood one day, you know, like all, all different people. Like it was just all over the place. And I got to play with, that's where I really got to play with like all the people that I ever wanted to play with. And it was fantastic. I mean, I, I, I got to play with James Brown I got to play with Springsteen. I got to play with Miles Davis. Uh, it was just and uh, Herbie Hancock. I got to play with him on the show. Um, it was just, it was just incredible the amount of people that I played with. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them I can't even remember because we did over six thousand shows, <laughs> and it's like it's just like a blur, you know. It's just like a couple that sort of stand out. I can imagine, um, but it was a great show. Now they also, I, I mean, Letterman kind of featured you a bit because I used to tune in every once in a while, and he'd do some shtick with Anton. Am yeah, I right? Yeah, Letterman liked me, and he would he would uh, do stuff with me. It was it was great. Um, I I do remember one time, I got to the show and they said, "You got to play a uh, the band played a song. You got to play a drum solo for three minutes." I don't know if you, people know, but to play for three minutes by yourself on television unprepared is like crazy. <laughs> uh, because after like 30 seconds, you're like, wow, you know, I'm what done. What am I going to do now? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I did. And the band walked off. And I had to play and play and play. And then anyway, they walked back on and, oh, God. And so I thought like, well, great, I did it. And I, 
I walked into the show the next day and they go, Letterman says you got to do it again. And so uh, I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> was there a reason for it or was this just torture? No, or I what? Think I, you know, in my mind, it was, I think it was like an initiation because it was pretty close to the beginning of my tenure. Like he was just like, you know. Let's test this guy, huh? Yeah, right. You know, uh, but then, you know, the, he seemed to really like me and the, the writers wrote me into the show a whole lot. We did a lot of bits together. Like, you know, they made me bite the head off a bird. And, and then <laughs> the show got like hate mail and all this stuff. I had to explain to the audience the next day, like how I did it, because just to diffuse the whole situation, because it was smoke and mirrors, you know, I'm not, well, I wasn't vegetarian, but I don't, you know, I draw the line at live birds, you know, so. You weren't doing an Ozzy Osbourne kind of thing. With I the, wasn't. The bad yeah, head, but that huh? was the premise, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, but he's a great Letterman is fantastic. He's like the, one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life, and just able to turn on like the humor whenever he wants. And he had like a kind of humor and timing that I really loved. And as a drummer, I had to watch him like a hawk the whole show because he expected like an accent or a pickup or something if he did something. And you know, you never knew when that was going to happen. And so I had to. Um, I had to be on my toes. It wasn't, it's weird. It wasn't the kind of show that you could like relax and play the music. You had to have your ears and eyes open the whole time because anything could happen on that show at any time. And it did. Wow. Now you were playing in the Ed Sullivan theater, at least for a, a long portion of your tenure. Am I right? Right. Right. So that's the theater, you know, from people that don't know that that's where the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan. That must've been, kind of something to be playing in that same theater. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I saw some of the photographs downstairs and all that, but I didn't see the Beatles play on Ed Sullivan because we didn't have TV when I was growing up. And, you know, you couldn't get a TV that didn't exist in the whole country. So, but you, when you think of the people that have been on that stage, you know, the Beatles and the Stones and, you know, all the different bands have played on Ed Sullivan. It's just incredible to be playing in that theater. I mean, all the stuff that I did, it was just like, I just thought, thought of myself as a little kid from a little town at the bottom of the earth. I mean, it was just all like pinch me experiences all the time. I can imagine. Yeah. Now, along the way, you were doing many other things as well, right? You did uh, celebrity shows. Yeah. Tell the us about band, some of that. The band would play at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so we got to, you know, and I did, I don't know how many of those I did, like at least 14, 14 to 16 of them. And, you know, in the beginning, I did, you know, that was when all the heavy hitters were getting inducted. And they would have un impromptu jams at the end as well. And so you'd be on stage and there'd be, um, you know, uh, I think there was one time we played, there was Dylan and Jagger singing at the same time, <laughs> you know, and like all these heavy guitarists, like all the most famous people playing. But I have to tell you that when you got like, <laughs> it was disorganized, you know what I mean? It was like everybody was like a free fall. So, and, and I, I don't think there's that many records of, of that still existing. Although I think Time Life did release a whole lot of tapes of all that stuff. And when you're playing with all these rock and roll gods up on the stage, 
Yeah. Is, is it cool to, you know, ask them for an autograph or something like that when nobody does yeah, anything like no, that? No, you didn't do that really, you know. And I sort of found that. Or take a picture with them, something like that. Sometimes you could. Sometimes you could. But, you know, I think with all those guys, because you don't have that much in common with them because they're living in a completely other stratosphere. It's like, what do you say, you know? And I found that if you got to work with them or did some event with them, then you could, you had established a little piece of history with them. And so if you ever saw them again, you could relate back to that history. And if you played with them, then they would kind of trust you and they knew who you were. You were a known entity and not someone they didn't know. And so you could build up a rapport, but it was that very first time that was so difficult. I can imagine. And but once you established a little piece of trust in history, it was, was okay. You know, many, many years ago, I, I saw this young guy uh, sitting on a stool playing guitar in Boston in a dive. And it was James Taylor before he became James Taylor. Yeah. And I ran into him, I don't know, 20 years later in a place. And I was of the view that I, I, how could I approach him? What was I going to say to him? Kind of like what you just said, although I hadn't played with him. I had just watched him at that time yeah. perform. Yeah. It was kind of awkward. I didn't want to go up there and just sound like some little teeny bopper or something. Right. You're right. It's, it's, it's hard. I mean, I, I'm happy to say I got to play with him a few times on Letterman, which was great. And, and then having, you know, established that, I went to see him play. We were on tour and, and he was playing in the same town. And I went to see him and I went backstage and it was then it was easy for me to talk to him and he knew I was and you know, we'd, we'd played together a bunch of times. And so it all sort of worked out. But, I, you know, that first time is, is nerve-wracking for sure. I can imagine. All right. So along the way, you, you did an album of your own, right? It's called yeah. Figments. Okay. Let's hear a little bit of Inside Out from Figments by Anton Fig. about that so I, did, I i always decided when when digital equipment came to the home i would want to do a record because in the you know before that time you had to have a huge budget to go into the studio and record and you know as things changed you could record at home because the equipment got really good that you could record at home and and now there's also a pipeline to get it out there with the with the internet although in theory, you know, because you still got to get people to hear it and get it advertised and people, you know, there's so much music out there. How do you get through it? But anyway, I decided to do a record and because I played with in so many different genres and so many different situations, I had a quite a huge pool of people to draw on and a lot of different styles I wanted to play. And I figured if I, if I just, play all this different kind of music with these different guests, you know, it'll be under the umbrella of my writing or co-writing and my production and in my project. And so 
I was, you know, I was lucky enough to get, like, I got Brian Wilson to sing backgrounds on. He was the only person I hadn't spoken to before, but I managed to get him through mutual friends. I got Ivan Neville to play on a on a song, Blondie Chaplin. I got Chip Taylor who wrote Angel of the Morning and and um, what was the Trog song? Wild Thing. It Wild thing. thing. I got all these great people and I put these various groups together that all made sense. You know, it wasn't just random people like a name fest. I really paired the right people together and did the records and, and did the record. And, you know, when you do it by yourself, it's a lot of work. And, you know, if you decide not to work on a day, nothing happens to the project. It's not like when the band goes in with the producer to the studio and, no, you know, you're not playing what they're doing guitar solos today or they're doing vocals or something like that. So it took me a long time. It took me like three years to get the thing done. But I got it done and I got it out. I got it out and, you know, it was done a while ago, but I'm, I'm still very proud of it. And I still think it sounds really good and contemporary. Yeah, I got Richie Havens on a song and he came over to my house. He was singing and he was like, we set up a mic in the bedroom and he had his guitar and his jangling jewelry. And it was great. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the nice thing about records is that once it's out there, it's always out there. And so people yeah. can always get it. Right. Now, you and I reconnected in the early 90s. I finally was getting back into music. I had taken a long time off from music, which is kind of the su the underlying subject of this podcast, mm -hmm. because it took me a long time to get, get my mojo back, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But when I finally went into the studio, it was around 1994, and I had a couple of my own songs, but it was, uh, you know, an experience with guys that were really experienced uh, in the studio. And I asked you if you would play on the record, and you were very gracious about it. We did two cuts together on that record. I'm not sure if you remember it because you've done so many things. But one of them was this song, Cakewalk for Deborah, that I played underneath the introduction. And uh, we also played a Miles Davis tune on the record. And uh, I remember to this day, you hit them both in, in one take. It, it, was, it was really impressive. Oh, thanks. Yeah. All right. Well, it was fun playing with you. I know that. Uh, it was always a, a dream and a pleasure to play with you. So tell me this. I know you've been associated with Joe Bonamassa for some time. How did that happen and what's going on there? So there was a producer that, that produces his stuff. There is a producer, and I've done a lot of work with him, a lot of different things, and he called me in to do Joe's record starting in 2006, I think it was. Uh, no. Well, I don't remember the exact date, but it was right as Joe was starting to get really big, and so I did a couple of records with him, and then they called me in to play. Joe was playing at the Royal Albert Hall, and he had his drummer, but they wanted to, he wanted to get me in as well. So there were double drummers at the Royal Albert Hall. And I did that. And I did a bunch of albums with him. And then when I was done with the Letterman show, I somehow trans I, I went into the drum chair. It seemed like a really natural evolution to, to start playing drums. And then I tour he tours a lot. He, he works a lot. And so for the last five years, I've been on the road with him. There were a few months I was away. I broke my ankle and uh, couldn't play. And then I got back on the road with him. And then we got pulled off in March a year ago uh, with COVID. 
And now we've just kind of started up again with uh, an album and just a couple of, we did a, a live stream and a DVD that's going to be coming out. The DVD is coming out next year. And then he's got a few dates in August. We're playing Red Rocks for two nights. I think all socially distanced and all that. But that's a beautiful venue. It's like a like 9,500 seater outdoors in the with the canyons and all that. But I, don't, I think it's half full. They'll make it half full for, you know, to be COVID friendly. Right. And um, so I have a few dates with him coming up. But, uh, you know, I've been just been playing uh, live with him and in the studio with him the last bunch of years. Um, and it's been very different playing live. You know, with Letterman, it was stop and start, different song, you know, different genre, different songs, different every day the show was different. This one, it's more like a two and a quarter hour set. You're sort of playing the similar material each time. And you get into like the arc of the set and, and how it goes and, you know, trying to keep your focus in a different kind of way to the show. It's a different discipline playing that way. Yeah. So the last year I assume has been difficult uh, for you, just like it's been difficult for all musicians. What have you been doing? Well, I've been in my studio and I've been recording tracks for people because, you know, with the digital in the home now, everyone can record really nicely. And I send my files to other people. They send me the tracks. I put the drums on. I send the drums off. So I've been doing some records that way. I also got asked to do a film score for someone. And so I did a, a film score for a few months. And because I'd been on the road for like almost five years, it was a time to just kind of be home and be with the family. My kid's about to go to college. So I got um, able to spend really quality time with, with him. And um, so it's been a very creative time for me, actually. It's been, I mean, the years flown by. I'm lucky that, um, extremely lucky that I've, you know, got this place that I can work. I'm extremely lucky that I can stay out of the line of fire of the COVID. And um, and I, I realize I've, I've had a better opportunity than tons of people. And like been kind of privileged, but I've made use of my time and with an eye to how terrible it is for for the world and for other people. You're, you know, you're right. It's it's a funny time because uh, like you, I've found that I've become more creative during this pandemic period than I ever was before. I mean, I've recorded remotely and put out two albums mm -hmm. and started this podcast all during the pandemic. And I feel exactly the same as you, how lucky I am that I've been able to do this and I haven't been affected by the pandemic directly but I guess we've all been affected in different ways. I mean, I haven't been able to play live for a year with right. my band because of all the things that we've been talking about. Right, right. I think that I, I do think that the um, the the disease, uh, the you know, the infection, whatever is. I think it's made everyone. It's going to have a lasting effect because it's made everyone pause and get out of their normal routine and see, look around them and reevaluate what's important what's not important you know what i mean and make you, you i mean like everyone has to work but make use of their time in a different kind of a way I agree and i'm hoping you. it'll all be for the better you know you know i also think it's put people uh, in more in touch with their mortality 
because mm-hmm. certainly at the beginning of this whole thing, nobody knew whether they were going to get it and if they got it, how it was going to affect them. Was it going to be like a passing flu or was it going to be much more serious? Mm-hmm. So it, I think you're right. People paused for a number of reasons and we all can use a pause in our life at some point. You know, I like to think of everything happening for a good reason. You know what I mean? Or making, finding the good out of it and the positive, the positive out of it. Right. It's a horrible, horrible situation. If there's a way to find some light in it, personal light, great. You know, I realize some people it's, it's very difficult. It just this time it worked out, I think, okay. So, Anton, I ask all my guests on the program, because this is a, a, a podcast called Follow Your Dream. It's all about people that have a dream. And I think that everybody's got a dream, whether they've pursued it or not. So many people, of course, haven't pursued their dream. You have, and you've done it so successfully. So the question is, what advice would you give to the dreamers out there, people that have a dream, but for whatever reason, either haven't pursued it or haven't done enough to move it forward? Well, I always kind of try to do it. And I said to myself, as long as I, if I can just do it and if it keeps getting better or keeps nourishing me in some way, I'm going to continue to do it. If the signs are keep doing it, I'm going to keep doing it. And I just kind of kept doing it. You know, you got to love, if you love it, uh, if you can carve out the time for it and just do it because it'll really nourish you. I mean, we've only got like one crack at this whole life thing. And so why not do it if you're, if you're able to? I realized like there's a lot of pressures on people and there's a lot of various restrictions. But if you can somehow carve out a, a little place for yourself to do what you want to do, and do that, you don't know where that's going to lead you. And it's worth taking a gamble. You don't have to chuck everything away, but just carve out a little time to do what you really love to do and see where it takes you. Words of wisdom from Anton Fig. Anton, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Now, as we do each week, we're going to play again the song that you heard underneath the introduction to this episode. It's called Cakewalk for Deborah. It's the first song that I ever wrote, and I wrote it back in the 70s when Anton and I were playing together. And uh, it was so nice to have him record it with me when I finally got around to recording it in the middle 90s. So I I hope you enjoy it, and uh, see you all next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Music.